Hello, today we're joined by Mr. Joseph Kim, uh, an American journalist uh, in Korea. He's a former Reuters correspondent uh, based in Seoul. He's been covering the peninsula for the past 10 years, and he recently switched to uh, research on climate change. Uh, today, however, we're going to discuss the history of refugees in Korea. Uh, this is an issue that has uh, cropped up uh, recently um, in, in public attention there because of uh, the uh, Afghanistan crisis and a number of Afghans who have now moved to Korea recently. Uh, so, Joseph, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello, Taro and Tamago. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, as you said in your kind introduction of me, I've been a journalist here uh, in Seoul covering the peninsula for almost a decade, five of which I've been at Reuters. And um, one of the reasons that I really got into the F refugee situation was because in 2020, um, we saw that the refugee acceptance rate fell to its all-time low since data has been compiled. Um, and there wasn't a lot of English resources talking about what was happening in that situation. So I wanted to bring some attention to it by tweeting it uh, on my social media. Okay, so um, so it's an all-time low, but it's always been among the lowest among the OECD, if not the lowest. OECD being the sort of the club of wealthy nations, which is about 25, 26 of them, correct? Yeah, so South Korea, between when it started accepting refugees, which is in 1994 to 2020, its average acceptance rate of refugees has been about 1.5, which is uh, very low. Um, and there has been a lot of debate whether or not uh, this is too low and what South Korea should do to promote the situation. But the main reason that I really got on social media and tried to bring some public awareness of it was not only is that rate uh, kind of very intolerant and uh, very lacking in terms of international standards, but there wasn't any English resources talking about the human rights violations that were happening at one of South Korea's refugee detention centers. Um, so around the end of December, so last month, it was reported that an asylum seeker at the center had to receive emergency medical care for resisting his detention. And it was found that this individual had been put into solitary confinement for the past 11 months, merely because he was HIV positive, meaning that he faced physical, emotional, and psychological punishment because of ongoing prejudice and stigmatization of HIV. No, so this is only one of several cases, uh, from what I understand. And so uh, one quick question. North Koreans seeking uh, refuge in, in South Korea, those are not counted as refugees. Is that correct? Yeah. By South Korean constitution, because South Korea does not recognize North Korea as a state, right. um, North Koreans who come seeking refuge or who cross over into South Korea, they are automatically South Korean citizens by constitutional law. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that because people will say that a lot of North Koreans are seeking refuge in South Korea. So here in this case, the, the in general, the populations we're talking about of, of people seeking asylum and refuge um, in South Korea are, uh, from what I've read, uh, Middle East, um, uh, parts of Africa, 
Central Asia, right? And maybe Southeast Asia? Can you please correct me? Yeah. Um, so the refugees that do come in, as well as the migrant population who are mostly wanting to come into South Korea, many of them are from the countries that you mentioned. And that's actually why a lot of human rights organizations, as well as um, human rights lawyers here, always say that we really can't um, remove race from the ongoing uh, intolerance of refugees or migrant workers that are hap uh, that are prevalent in South Korean society. Just by looking at the numbers, we know that um, the percentage of foreigners living in South Korea is around 4%. And then in 2020, there was a survey that was done by the National Human Rights Commission here that found that 68% of migrant workers uh, respondents in those surveys said that racism is pervasive in South Korea, uh, with many of them experiencing verbal and physical abuse. Okay. Um, and so these are actually legal, right? Legal, uh, uh, let's say, workers. Uh, I don't know how to use the word migrant because sometimes it's incorrectly used to describe uh, legal refugees. And whereas it, migrants should apply to people seeking work, maybe. How do you treat that, those, those definitions or those words? That's a really important distinction that actually is very important in South Korea because um, in South Korea, what a lot, a lot of the backlash against refugees is they're calling the people who are fleeing their homes from um, war, political ostracization, or even perhaps climate change they argue, even the Korean government argues that these are economic migrants or economic refugees rather than refugees themselves. Even if we look at the justice ministry's criteria of what it considers a refugee, um, those who are fleeing a war-torn country, they're technically not refugees because yeah. they're instead choosing to not go into the military or fight in the war. In a war that they don't necessarily want to fight in, right? Exactly. They don't want to be coerced into fighting. Now, it should be clear that uh, the definition of refugee is actually an internationally recognized definition. So it's not necessarily up to the Korean government to define refugee for itself, correct? I mean, as long as they're signing these international treaties, they then adopt international definitions of what a refugee is or as opposed to an economic migrant, as opposed to a, an expat or whatever, correct? Yeah, and this is another interesting, very important note, is that South Korea is agreeing to all these yeah. different international standards. They are right. a signatory of the United Nations Convention when it regards to the status of refugee, and that's right. a treaty that defines who is a refugee and what responsibilities the host nation actually has in providing rights to those individuals. So South Korea is agreeing to these terms, but they're not accepting them at a, at a rate or even a standard that other OECD countries are really doing. What is the average rate for OECD, by the way, just to clarify? Well, in general, East Asian countries, from my research and my reporting, I found they're actually very uh, low compared to other European or OECD countries. We saw right. even with uh, one of the reasons that 
um, refugee applications fell during 2020 was because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And uh, even Japan, it saw its refugee acceptance rate fall from about 10,000 in 2019 to 3,000 in 2020. Whereas Europe, even though their rates went down, they still provided shelter and didn't reject these individuals. So it shows that South Korea is not even keeping up with any of those standards. There's only hundreds being accepted uh, versus thousands or tens of thousands. Okay. So let's talk about a few of these cases. Number one, you had the, the, the big news was several years ago when, when uh, Yemeni refugees were flying into Jeju Island, right? And then you have uh, a number of individual cases that come up um, of torture and abuse, right? And then most recently, you have the, the case of the Afghan uh, refugees. And so broadly speaking, you have three different populations of refugees um, and treated being treated differently, although overall maybe the Afghans might be a little bit uh, an exception, but generally speaking, it's always been a rejection or finding excuses. But what is what I found more uh, worrying, uh, if not appalling, was that there are cases where they're actually falsifying paperwork, falsifying statements uh, on behalf of refugees, allegedly, to make it look like or to justify rejection, to justify all sorts of other practices. And that's pretty, uh, that's, that's incredible. So do you want to pick up one of these cases and maybe let's, let's kind of delve a little deeper into um, how, how that's happening? So the, the HIV person case or any other case that uh, you can actually read about in the news if you Google it. Sure. Um, well, all the topics that you mentioned, they're actually very significant in terms mm-hmm. of the timeline and what is happening in the current debate mm-hmm. and um, public sphere of South Korea today. Um, we know that the Yemen situation in 2018 was actually really where the floodgates opened in terms of the refugee, um, the refugee debate happened in the country. Um, that to give some specifics, is when around some 500 Yemen uh, asylum seekers on Jeju Island, they wanted to apply for refugee status. And then we saw protests uh, in the hundreds, hundreds of people rallying in Seoul against granting them refugee. And um, I actually was able to get a front seat. Not only did I report on that situation and what had happened, but the protests that were happening were right in front of the Reuters office at the time. Because? Uh, Just by coincidence? or Yeah, by coincidence, because Reuters is actually in central Seoul. So, um, Was it hundreds yeah. or hundreds of thousands? It's hundreds, just hundreds. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. It's hundreds. Uh, yeah. But that actually was the first time that so many people had come out to uh, protest against refugees. And this is actually why a lot of lawyers and human rights activists say that this is, it's difficult to remove race from these yeah. situations because uh, what we saw in that situation was even though many of the protesters said it was an economic reason. One of the main slogans that were adopted for that protest was Koreans first, Korea's first, or 
uh, nationals first. And that is very, especially because it's 2018, it's really reflective of what was happening around the globe, especially in the United States. We know that Trump had adopted the America First campaign, and he was really trying to use that for domestic politics, but it was actually creating a hostile situation internationally. And even that slogan in and of itself has racist roots, because if you go back, it isn't Trump who came up with that catchphrase. It comes from the 1940s um, when there was a nationalist group that decided to make a party, and they were called America's First, and they were actually pro-Nazi supporters. So it was a very race. It has very racist roots, and whether or not South Koreans knew that or not, it still it still has significant implications that they decided to use it. And what's right. even more. Uh, important to note is that the South Korean government, after those protests, they decided to adopt and use that type of rhetoric and say, saying that it's citizens first, that we will put citizens first. So they actually buckled under pressure. The, the, the irony of uh, America first policies, uh, had they been adopted in the U.S., um, many Koreans would have been rejected <laughs> into, into, into the United States as immigrants, legal or otherwise. Well, I think that's also very interesting um, to suggest that they buckled. Um, I'm not necessarily sure if they buckled or rather they were just passive in what they wanted to do. Uh, according to the current administration, they have online petitions. 700,000 people signed a t petition to not grant refugee status to those Yemen asylum seekers. Um, the government has to respond to those online petitions if it, it, it reaches a certain number. Uh, but you mentioned the Afghan situation, and instead of being passive, the South Korean government was very proactive and said that South Korea has a moral obligation to accepting these people. They didn't give those uh, refugee seekers um, they didn't give them refugee status, but they gave them a different title, which was called persons of special interest. They could have obviously done more, but that proactive approach was very different from what we saw in 2018, where South Korea basically did not say anything. So do you think the government um, agrees with the population or disagrees with the population and, and just doesn't want to, or, or is just being, I, I'm, I'm trying to, understand whether the government itself reflects the will of the population on this issue, um, but they couldn't kind of uh, let this happen again with, uh, with Afghan refugees because obviously it had a much higher international uh, focus on it. Uh, I'm sure they got a lot of pressure from the U.S. and, and other European Western allies to, to actually do their part in this case, as opposed to a few years ago when it was just Yemenis coming in, uh, it wasn't even in the news, it wasn't, you know what I mean? It wouldn't put the Korean government on, under such a spotlight. It, so exactly. I think it's, it, the, right. the optics is very important. And uh, yeah. I think the South Korean government also knew that there were certain optics behind accepting or providing shelter for uh, people in Afghanistan who actually helped the South Korean government and South Korean military in its yeah. operations in the country, uh, as opposed to Yemen, uh, where perhaps they felt like they didn't have any obligations. Um, and they weren't under an international spotlight. Um, 
Now, to go back to the issue of racism, I, from what I've read, yeah, there were some some pretty blatant comments about uh, uh, people who were Muslim being let into the country, uh, that um, Korean girls would be uh, endangered uh, by these uh, Yemeni men. I mean, some people actually made those comments, right? As opposed to simply say citizens first. Yeah, so what's very interesting about the Yemen situation, it's really tricky because there's so much complex like studying that we could do of different demographics and populations. But there was a poll that was conducted right after the protests as well as the ongoing online petition at the time. And it showed that 53% of the population or respondents expressed hostility towards refugees. Uh, There hasn't been a poll recently whether or not they, um, there was a poll during the Afghan time and many thought it was their responsibility to do so. But in the Yemen case, uh, 53% were against accepting refugees. And then 37% said that they were willing to accept them. Uh, but what is more interesting is that women were actually the most intolerant with 60% of females in that survey opposed to refugees, whereas 48% uh, from men, opposition from men. And as you mentioned, um, this is one of the things that the Human Rights Watch actually uh, is critical of the South uh, of South Korea in that uh, the intolerance comes from this easy uh, persuasion to negative stereotypes, and that is where some of that comes from. Where there was a rumor that was started online that suggested that these Yemen refugees were rapists, and that created social media buzz in where. South Korean women were very against accepting these Yemen refugees, especially because a lot of those asylum seekers were men instead of right. women or children. Or families, yeah. So that is why um, we saw a lot of that rhetoric coming out. But uh, the Islamophobia, not just from that time, it was also pervasive recently. Uh, there was a mosque that was going to be built in Tegu which is one of the most conservative regions in South Korea. But um, groups in that city, they actually were largely opposed to it and kept protesting and are still protesting against the construction of the mosque. Mm. Um, I just want to point out that a few years prior to the Yemeni refugees in in South Korea, there were a lot of... uh, uh, refugees and asylum seekers from uh, Syria that ended up in Germany and other parts of Europe. And there were similar stories uh, about um, these men raping and assaulting and molesting uh, local women. And apparently a lot of these stories were were just false. Um, and so it might have traveled from Europe to, uh, to South Korea. These yeah, kinds I, of rumors and... Well, we don't have data to really suggest where it came from, but obviously there is misinformation that is invoked online. Uh, We see it all the time. And uh, because there's no knowledge exactly of what is happening 
um, or who these people are. As I said, 4% of the population is foreign, which is a very small number. It becomes more susceptible. The population becomes more susceptible to certain negative stereotypes. Uh, there was another poll that was actually done um, and it actually showed that 60% of the population didn't know there was a war happening in Yemen. So even though they didn't know that these individuals were actually fleeing a war, they still argued that they were only coming to South Korea in order to either take jobs or because they wanted to become uh, what many people call economic migrants. And going back to your question, whether or not this is a public, a public reasoning that forces the government to change their policies, or if it's the government that actually thinks that, uh, the government actually has been on record to say and suggest that there are fake refugees who apply to the country. And again, that is why it's very important to make a distinction between what happened in Yemen and what happened with Afghan refugees in South Korea. Uh, because when the government takes a proactive approach, it does send a message to the population as well. But if they take a passive one, then it does create um, more hostility because it doesn't actually correct what might be misinterpreted or misinformation that is spreading in the population. Right. So I, I think the, the idea of fake refugees or fake applicants, that, that you can see that anywhere in the world, and that is legitimate. I mean, there are, there's always a percentage of people that are rejected. But then it takes us back to the process by which the host government has to go through in line with international standards to identify uh, these cases and, and sort of decide whether to grant asylum or not. And that system appears to be uh, broken in Korea, right? Um, so what is happening there? Can we talk a bit about, more about that where, you know, again, these false statements, uh, this ill treatment, and it seems like Korean civil society and some Korean law firms are actually fighting back in Korea. Yeah, um, before we talk about the... Um process, which obviously shows there is a structural problem um, in regards to the fake refugee narrative that is happening in Korea. One thing that is very important to note is actually the people that do uh, help these quote-unquote fake refugees, a lot of them are law-practicing South Korean lawyers. Um, right. And South Korea, as we mentioned, from 1994 to 2012, has an acceptance rate of 1.5. So to suggest that all these people are fake refugees, yeah, even right. though the number is at 1.5, it, it raises a lot of questions as to the sincerity of the government to use those type of narratives. Um, but going right. back to the structural problem, uh, there was a yeah. lot of studies. And, just, uh, just to clarify, I, I wasn't yeah. suggesting that, that I wasn't legitimizing the claim. I, you know, usually it's a minority of these cases that are uh, fake, not a majority. <laughs> so, uh, but but that's why you you then focus on the process and and how you came. So instead of basically saying they're fake or they're not, usually people say, okay, well, show us what you went through, show us the documents. And what's happening in South Korea is that they're actually actively faking these documents to arrive at these conclusions, which is really troubling. Um, so I wanted to discuss a little bit about that and also about the civil society now that, again, as an outsider, 
appears to be maybe, um, and it, I could be completely wrong, but it seems like that movement of fighting back is is rising or, or maybe not. Maybe it's always been like this. Well, I think it's, I, I think to suggest that there never has been an opposition to the uh, movement against refugees, so people who are supporting refugees, um, if that is what it seemed like, that means that the media hasn't properly portrayed what was going on. Um, as I said, I had a front row seat at those 2018 um, protests right next to those protests, even though there were only dozens, obviously the number is smaller. There were pro-refugee right. protests that were happening simultaneously. Right. And that year as well, I went to a number of protests that uh, denounced racism and that also suggested that we need to accept refugees. Right. And so who are also a part of this are what you said, civil society as well as civic groups. And a lot of the civic groups for at least a decade have really been um, criticizing these procedural flaws that have come out that people have realized have been happening, these um, situations. Like one of them is in 2019, the National Human Rights Commission they found that the refugee application interviews, as you said, were falsified. Um, and they said that the reason for that was because the Justice Ministry had adopted a new quote-unquote speedy refugee process. And that was adopted in 2014. So that's actually really weird because um, just after that, other findings found that the entire screening process was rigged between 2015 to 2018. So there's an abundance of evidence, and that is why we saw last month, uh, for the first time ever, a South Korean court actually handed down a ruling that ordered the government to pay damages to an asylum seeker after it was found that uh, officials, uh, public servants, had actually mishandled their testimony and rejected their application based on those um, mishandlings. So it was a very big first step for uh, the South Korean court because it sets precedence for what is to happen next. Uh, but there has been persistent calls from civic groups, human rights activists, and human rights lawyers uh, to call for improvement to the country's refugee screening system. And are these officials going to be punished? Uh, as of now, it's unclear what will actually happen, especially because the laws make it so that um, they're being revised. Even uh, the, the one law, the Article 63 of the Immigrant Act, which came into question after the HIV uh, situation that I talked about, um, that makes it so what the situation is around there is that in the Refugee Act or Immigration Act, uh, there is an article that states if a person is facing deportation or if their visa has expired, they can essentially be detained at one of these centers indefinitely because it isn't reviewed by a court of law. It's only reviewed by the Justice Ministry and the Justice Ministry will decide whether or not that person can be repatriated or not. And if they are not repatriated for whatever reason, 
they will have to spend time at that detention center. Um, that actually, that law is being reviewed in February. So there's a lot of these laws that uh, many lawyers and civil society is actually pushing to fight in order to make the process and to ensure the protection of refugees. This is a bit similar to Australia, it seems like, you know, like the, the, the Djokovic case now, you know, where he was put in a hotel. And the wider story around it is that there were people seeking refuge in Australia that have been in that hotel for, you know, nine, ten years. Um, is, the, is that a similarity? Because they're, they're also in detention indefinitely over there, it seems like. Sure. Um, well, a hotel is very different from a detention center. Well, again, um, hotel in parentheses. I'm, yeah. I'm sure it's not. Yeah, yeah. The, Sorry. the yeah. one thing is, especially the case that we're talking about, as well as the other cases at that center, which is called Hwasong Foreigner Detention Center, um, when they are in solitary confinement, they have no windows. Um, they basically, when they're left there, this individual who tested positive for HIV and was put in solitary confinement because there was misinformation about HIV, it was reported that he only went outside twice. He didn't get any outside playground time. He didn't have a window. So this is why I said that he is enduring um, not only physical, but psychological and emotional punishment because you're in this room by yourself for 11 months. Yeah. Um, but these types of situations have been ongoing for the past five years in South Korea. Uh, another high-profile case was when about 100 Syrian refugees, it was reported that they had been stuck at Incheon International Airport in Seoul. And they've essentially been stuck because they were waiting for their application, their refugee application to go through. Because according to the Refugee Act that South Korea has, it actually is legal for the individual to apply for refugee status upon entry. Uh, but these individuals, they were stuck in the rating room, which, they, which the South Korean government called a repatriation waiting room. And all of these people, they, they were stuck in that room, and there was one shower. They all received burgers and cola for their meals. And if they had dietary restrictions because of their religious faith, that means they only got bread. And those people were in that waiting room for at least six months. Another case that came out in 2019 was of an Angola family, and it turned out that they had been stuck at the intern, at Incheon International Airport for 10 months, and they finally were able to get out of the airport and apply for refugee uh, status after it was reported in the media, and they were finally given proper housing while they waited for their application process to go through. What happened with the Syrians? The Syrians, um, it they, it was reported that they would go through the process, but it wasn't reported whether or not uh, they were able to leave the airport or if they got housing. Uh, but it's been there's been reports in domestic media here that there are still people waiting at Incheon International Airport, even recently. So this isn't 
a rare scenario. It, it is what happens uh, quite frequently, it seems. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like when you have a population that, I mean, 4% uh, foreign population is, is relatively small, quite small, actually. And you could argue the opposite of one can understand the rise in xenophobia or racism if that population was 20% or 25%. But to have that kind of strong reaction when it's 4%, one wonders where that's coming from. Sure. I actually had a question about this because... Um... From, my, from what I know, Japan actually has a lower yeah. population. Yeah, and also the you know the also uh, the famous for the difficult to upload the as a refugee. So we're there's small number to accept the refugees as well. The yeah. South Koreans, and yeah. But you know, Japan is known for for its uh, his, history of xenophobia and this. You know, we're an island. We're used to be separate. And I'm trying to understand where that comes from for Korea. Well, I can't exactly pinpoint where this might be okay. happening, but we do see that populism is a global phenomenon that is happening. I don't want to say that it is unique uh, to South Korea, but one thing that is interesting is that in Korea, there often is an emphasis on national origin. There are terms still... Uh, used such as pure blood um, especially because it is a relatively homogeneous society and because of that a lot of rights groups they tell me that um, public per perception hasn't really uh, progressed but they are hoping that slowly that there will become more recognitions of the problem and that does seem to be the case as more and more people fight for the protection of these refugees or migrants. And the reason I say migrants is because, as you mentioned, even though there are 4% of the population that are foreigners, uh, the pandemic actually highlighted how important migrant workers were in South Korea. There was so many reports from the agriculture, from the fisheries sectors, talking about the shortage of labor. And the main reason for that was because of all the border closures, given the coronavirus situation, whether their country would not let them come to Korea or Korea would not accept any more uh, or would not grant any more visas. Uh, but because of that, it was put in such a difficult position because these industries that they do rely on, that do make up part of the economy, now they were in a place that they can't actually function properly without what what they call are people who are just coming into the country for money. And that's actually why it's really interesting because even though the argument has been that certain people from different countries want to come into Korea to capitalize on the situation or take away jobs, a lot of migrant workers, especially those with darker skin, they occupy industries and jobs that actually South Koreans wouldn't yeah. normally take. Exactly. So the, you mentioned about the Koreans. So uh, when they protested, they said uh, Korean first. The, the slogan is Korean first. So um, I don't say I understand, but so the same in Japan. So Japanese people are kind of 
uh, afraid of uh, accepting uh, not refugees, not only the refugees, but also the foreigners. Because uh, Japan is known as a safety country, but somehow the Japanese people believe if we accept the foreigners a lot, so the public security will be getting worse. That's the, uh, the, the biggest concern about Japanese people. So that's why, so um, when the government decided to contribute the founding fund to the refugees or to the refugees countries or the other countries, so the most of Japanese never complain about that. Yeah, so it means accepting the people is kind of, you know, um, afraid of, or the, we're afraid of accepting the people, but they got the funding or the pay the money to the, to the other countries when we, uh, we don't complain. So how about the South Korea? Sure, yeah. Even after South Korea rejected um, or did not grant refugee status to the Yemen asylum seekers, they actually contributed millions of dollars to the UN Refugee mm -hmm. Fund. Um, and I think there's twofold to that, actually, um, especially South Korea, who went from a rags to riches story. They're one of the uh, first countries who really went from a aid receiving country to a, a donor country. It, if you contribute to these type of funds, it actually does solidify your economic prowess and status as a developed country. Um, and it also is an easy way, as we've seen from different corporations, instead of actually making systematic changes or structural changes to how the company is run, they instead will give to charities or will uh, start an art museum. Uh, this has always been a diversionary tactic that even governments, I think, sometimes use. And um, the same can be said for South Korea, where they also will donate money, but they will not receive uh, more refugees, even though their rate is very low. And um, in terms of public safety, that's actually one of the reasons why those Yemeni asylum seekers were not granted, because, as I said, there were false rumors that these individuals or these men were rapists, even though there was no evidence to suggest mm -hmm. that they were. But this fear was invoked, and it stuck, and it was the narrative throughout that entire time. Um, but I do think it's also very important to note that um, in the beginning, there was certain churches that were helping those Yemen asylum seekers. They were giving them clothes and certain things. They actually didn't want to have physical contact with those people in the beginning. So they would leave boxes in front of where they were staying or uh, whatnot. But after time went on and they realized that, you know, these people aren't what we keep hearing about, they started having interactions and having relationships with those individuals and started breaking bread with them. Um, so it's easy to fear this unknown and it's easy to piggyback off uh, certain narratives, especially if they become so loud. 
but it also takes courage to kind of make a step forward and say, like, maybe this isn't everything there is to the story. Um, and, and I think this is a phenomenon that we've seen everywhere. I don't know if either of you have watched the movie The Big Short, but when the whole situation is happening, um, one of the main characters says, as always, when the economy fails, they'll blame migrants and poor people. And in South Korea, youth unemployment has continued to see record numbers. Mm -hmm. And these young people are very unsatisfied with how the government is running the situation. And so instead of making or perhaps trying to achieve structural change, it becomes easier to blame the migrant workers or the poor people. And that's kind of what has happened. But if we start as many of the lawyers and activists tell me, have these relationships with these people like the churches did, maybe we will understand that these people are actually helping contribute to society mm -hmm. in ways that we haven't imagined before. So Joseph, uh, last question. Is there anything that you want to say um, or add to this conversation before we, uh, we end? Yeah, um, I, I know that we talked a lot about what the government is doing, some of the public perceptions that is happening within the country. But I do want to emphasize that I have seen a lot of the work that people are doing to make uh, South Korea a better place for refugees and for uh, people who are migrant workers here. Um, one of the organizations that I've been able to see up close in person, um, I've seen them ensure that certain migrant workers get their wages, which sometimes they don't get their wages. I've seen them go to hospitals with them and ensure that they get proper care. Uh, these hospitals, they will give free health care, even though these workers might not qualify for the National Healthcare Service. Um, so even though we are talking about a larger picture, I think we shouldn't ignore that there are efforts on the ground that continue to progress the conversation and push it forward to ensure that these people do have safety and that their human rights are guaranteed essentially in this place. And it shouldn't only be focused on how negative it is, but we should also try to see what these people are doing and um, maybe try to give them a bit of more platform so that they can give us their insights on how we can resolve the issue better. Uh, because if we only focus on how it isn't working, there never is a solution to how it is working. And clearly these individuals are trying to make it work. Yeah. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, I, it appeared to me that there was a, a, a sort of a more aggressive civil society that was actually trying to change things and improve things. Um, and I'm, I'm happy you're, you're, you're ending on that note, on, a, on an optimistic note. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Global. With your host, Tamago, and Kangakuru Taro. See you next time. Bye-bye.